The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Get out on the edge, push the limits, stand out, and achieve. Every day is like this for the heroes of action sports. Get ready to hear their stories today on the Edge Radio Show. Now here's your host, Hope, professional ski patroller, author, and journalist, Fire in the hole. Kim Kircher. Jamal Yogis, author of The Fear Project, What Our Most Primal Emotion Taught Me About Survival, Success, Surfing, and Love, knows a thing or two about facing fear. He stared his fear, fear face straight in the face and surfed mavericks. He swam with sharks. He also used himself as a guinea pig in his book to explore the human reaction to this most primordial of emotions. An epic adventure full of incredible characters, death-defying athletic achievement, and bleeding-edge science, the Fear Project began with one question. How can we overcome our fears to reach our full potential? Jamal Yogis joins us today to talk to us about overcoming fear. Jamal, thanks for being here. Thank you, Kim. So tell us about the Fear Project. How did you come up with the idea for this book? Um, well, I uh, really it was just a bad breakup. <laughs> like, so I wish I had a better story than that. Like I'd been at war or something and had to get through my PTSD, but it was just, you know, my girlfriend broke up with me and we'd been together for oh, about five years off and on. And I was starting to see that I had this sort of pattern in relationships where I would usually be the one who didn't want to commit for a long time, and I'd be sort of dancing around that issue, but still not want to lose the girl, but uh, not really wanting to commit either. And eventually, you know, my partner would get fed up with that and be like, later, man. And and then I would want to overcommit and... So it took that fear to get me, that fear of loss, to sort of get me to act. And then once the breakup would happen, I would sort of stew in this like, insecurity and uh, fear about, oh, I'm not lovable or I'll never meet somebody like that again. And I'd be in this big hole and, you know, it was way over dramatic. But I'd been through it so many times that, I mean, you know, since high school or whatever, that I could recognize this pattern, but it would still happen. It would still, like, be an emotional feeling in my body of, you know, stress and heart clamping down and all of those things that you feel when you're really afraid. And I knew I would pass through it. I would, whatever, meet somebody else, or I would just get through it over time. But emotionally, I couldn't listen to that wisdom that I would I would get through it or that I knew intellectually and I, I became fascinated with that dichotomy of wh- why what we feel doesn't often jive with what we know and I'd been interested in that for a long time in the realm of surfing too because I surf every day and that has become a 
a practice of how I sort of deal with emotions of daily life and work and relationships out there in the water. And the same thing happens out there too, where you may uh, feel paralyzed by uh, the look of a wave or a situation and freeze up. But when you look back on it, you think, God, if I just hadn't hesitated right at the crest there, I would have been fine. I, I would have stayed relaxed and I would either made the wave or fallen in a way that I wouldn't got hurt. But instead I froze up and, you know, I got pounded just in the way that I shouldn't all because of fear. So I thought, uh, anyway, why not leap into this whole issue? And I think up until this point, having parents who are into like meditation and yoga, I'd done a lot of that sort of thing to deal with fear and stress. And also I had, you know, sports help us deal with, with fear and stress. And so I'd sort of just been intuiting my way through, but I was frustrated with how I was still falling into the same patterns. And so I thought I need to somehow try something new. So I, I thought I'll try on this neuroscience stuff um, and really get into like what is going on in the brain and body. And maybe that'll help me get a new take on things. And so that's what I did. I started interviewing all these neuroscientists and psychologists and uh, along the way, extreme athletes, um, folks like that who seem to have some expertise on fear. And um, yeah, and it, it was an interesting few years. And you start the book, you're swimming in San Francisco Bay. You're going to go from Alcatraz to the mainland or mainland to Alcatraz and back. And right. you, you, you start talking about how when you were a little kid and you're visiting Alcatraz with your school you know, field trip and, and the, the guys telling you, you know, nobody ever lives <laughs> if they tried to swim from Alcatraz. It's a lot, you know, there's currents and sharks and cold water and all that. And you're sort of thinking about that. And then you go out and you're just going to swim it. Why, why were you going to do that? And why did you start the book with that? Yeah. I mean, that was sort of a, a minor fear. I thought I'd start small. I had this we were on a memory of being on a field trip at Alcatraz when I was a kid and, and our guide telling us, you know, this island is perfectly set up so you could never escape. And if you did make it through the armed guards and the barbed wire, yada, yada, then you would have to deal with the sharks and there wasn't a chance. And the one guy who did make it, he got hypothermia and died anyway. So, um, you know, don't try it, kids. And it really rattled me. You know, I was seven or so, and I would have nightmares about falling into the bay and sharks eating me and such. So anyhow, as an adult, I surfed every day in these waters and didn't think a lot about sharks, but I would still have nightmares about sharks. And Alcatraz also sort of represented uh, that fear. And so I have a cousin who is... Uh, ultra swimmer who does these hundred mile swims nonstop and swimming to Alcatraz for him was like, you know, he does it on a Tuesday morning, no big deal. And so I asked him to come with me. And the, the idea was that not that I was so terrified by this um, intellectually, but there was still an emotional charge for it. So it was again, investigating that dichotomy. And I wanted to see what would happen if when I did it, if these, uh, this charge that the island had and that the bay had would go away. And so we did it, and 
as a matter of fact, it was a really fun morning, and you know, this we ended up uh, not making it to the island because we got in trouble for not having a permit. We were just swimming sort of brazenly without uh, help from the or permission from the Dolphin Club and the Coast Guard in any way. We got sort of chased out of the water by the police, which ended up being really fun because we were like, hey, we're escaping from Alcatraz. And uh, But the actual swim and being in the water was not scary, and it was just like being out on a surfboard like I do every day. And, and the idea behind this was I was in the midst of researching all this neuroscience about memory, and memories are sort of... Uh, interesting things, the way they work in our brain. We used to think, actually for the last, almost last 100 years since we started investigating our brains, we thought memories, uh, particularly like a scary memory, was just lodged in there somewhere and it would exist forever once you had it uh, as that original memory. And so you couldn't really change it. It was sort of there in the brain. But it turns out that every time I recall being on that island in fact, right now, as I talk about it, I'm actually contacting the original fear memory, and I'm changing it. I'm, I'm, I'm actually conjuring it up and altering it, and altering the synaptic connection. So every time you remember something, in a way, it gets further from the truth of that memory, but you're also able to change the fear and your association with it. So right now, I'm feeling relaxed. I'm having a good time with Kim, so I'm changing that memory. And even more so when you actually go there to the place and re-experience it in a positive way. Like this, we had a great morning. We got chased out by the cops, and we said we're sorry. We laughed, and we went out to breakfast, and we were there with friends. And so all of a sudden, the the charge of that fear was just... uh, replaced with this new association neuroscientists would say it was reconsolidated and so that was sort of a just getting my toes wet um experiment and uh it convinced me it was actually the sort of jumping off point for like yeah i'm really going to do this this works i'm going to take all these little childhood fears and I'm just going to play with them. I'm going to take those memories and reconsolidate them, whether it's memories of my parents' divorce that have probably gotten me in this silly relationship pattern or memories uh, in sports or work or, or what have you. And so it's almost like you're you're actually like overlaying the new experience over the old memory kind of in your brain. It you know? is. So- I mean, overlaying is... Is probably a good image, but it, it even seems like more than that, you're actually changing the fundamental uh, part of the memory so that it's different. So, I mean, updating a document on your computer it's it, and not having the original document anymore is sort of more the analogy. So that original memory is not there anymore. It's um, it's different. It's changed. And so everything we do, we're updating um, memory, everything, uh, every ad and, you know, lesson we have in school is often updating memory, reconsolidating it. But with fears, sometimes we let them just consolidate and never touch them again. Or when we do touch them again, we add more fear onto them, say, uh, 
you know, I remember Pet Cemetery was the first movie that really freaked me out. There was this one image of this woman, this anorexic woman in it, who just, I couldn't, I couldn't picture her face and not just cringe. And over the years, I would think of that in the scariest times, like when I was alone uh, on a camping trip or something, and I would, her face would come up and I'd and I'd basically shove it away, and I'd say, I don't want that. So I was continually reconsolidating that scary movie with uh, pushing away, with not wanting to, to go there. And so it wasn't really, it was reconsolidating the memory, but just with more fear or more aversion. And so I wasn't going toward it. And instead, it would have been better to, you know, tell my friends about it and, you know, laugh about how actually it's a pretty silly movie, but... Uh, you get the point anyway. It's it's it is like an overlaying, but um, I think even more so like a fundamental changing of the memory. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, what I remember in that scene of you swimming, I think it's when you're swimming back, you've kind of gone out and you've been caught out, and then they tell you you have to turn around, and the 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 current is strong, and you're actually you actually start singing. Um, eye of the tiger to yourself. <laughs> and and I think that that, that to me is really, um, I don't know, it's really poignant in that, in that scene because you've replayed, you know, instead of this scary thing about, you know, escaping from Alcatraz, you could never do it. You're actually, you know, singing this song and you're doing it and you're making it back and you're actually able to swim through that current. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, it's, I think one of the reasons uh, well, often in sports, and exp- particularly in extreme sports or endurance sports, you hit those moments where you're kind of like, well, "This is cheesy, but I'm going to conjure this. I'm going to conjure up that Rocky Balboa moment, and mm-hmm. or Karate Kid, or whatever it is." And those things are there from our childhood, and you know they work. So why not use them? And even if it is a little hokey when you are face-to-face with fear or extreme pain, nothing is hokey. It's like you want something that's going to get, that's deep in your unconscious, and whether it's Rocky or God or whatever you need to conjure up at that moment, uh, you use it. And for whatever reason, I, the tiger, came up when I was uh, swimming up current and trying to get back to land and the uh, cops were on our tail and so yeah it worked and and that was another example of you know later I, I got into the science and realized oh wow how how helpful music can be in um, getting us out of our uh, overthinking essentially so that you know I think it's why athletes listen to particular songs and get into that uh to get them into the zone because it's so easy to overthink those things and give ourselves more fear than we need when really fear isn't bad or good. We're just looking for that sweet spot where uh, we can use the adrenaline and faster heart rate, et cetera, for energy in the moment rather than it spilling into panic and paralysis. Absolutely. Can we learn to overcome fear? Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll find out more from author Jamal Yogis.
stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. Crystal Mountain Resort is Washington State's largest and premier ski area. With 10 lifts and over 50 named trails, you can spend days exploring the mountain. From wide open bowls and steep chutes for the more adventurous to family-friendly cruisers, you're sure to find something for everyone. The new eight-passenger gondola takes you 2,500 vertical feet to the best view of Mount Rainier and the Summit House Restaurant, where the food rivals the scenery. Convenient slopeside accommodations make Crystal Mountain Resort the perfect skier's getaway. Open for skiing until June. Learn more at crystalmountainresort.com. Sports continues to grow and evolve to ever-increasing prominence in today's society. On All Around Sports, host John Inglesby will connect with the leading newsmakers from the sports world, including players, owners, and fellow sports journalists, discussing the top news and events that are relevant to sports today. John will also report from and offer his experience of the world's top sports events. Tune in to All Around Sports with John Inglesby, Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Sports Channel. The fans now have a voice to speak their mind. No holds barred. They need a bitch's ass and then move on. I just just think that the coach made a mistake. Crazy. (laughs) NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL. Speak up. Speak up. Or forever hold your mouth. We ain't playing around here. Voice America Sports. You're listening to The Edge with Kim Kircher. If you have a question or comment for our show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9144. That's 1-888-346-9144. Or send an email to KimberlyKircher at gmail.com. Now, back to The Edge. Welcome back to The Edge. I'm Kim Kircher, and I'm talking to Jamal Yogis. So, Jamal, we started talking about this a little earlier, about uh, overcoming fears. But is it is it possible for us to actually overcome and, you know, get rid of our old fears? Yes, I think so. I mean, the at least from what I've learned, fear, each individual fear, I think, is conquerable. Uh, whether we can ever be fearless in the big sense, I'm not sure that we would even want to be because fear and stress, I think what I learned most in the process of researching fear for a few years is that fear and stress aren't bad. And, and there's the obvious points of like, okay, you don't want to you know, walk into the street when uh, into traffic or something like that. But um, But even on a on sort of a subtle daily level, stress gets us into the zone. It gets us into those flow states where uh, we're pushed to do, and sort of the reason we like to do these um, sports that push us into uh, a new zone or that help us find our potential. Because what a little bit of stress, a little bit of adrenaline and a faster heart rate do is they get us right into the moment because when you think about it, how fear evolved, uh, it was meant to help us get away from a predator right in the moment, fight, uh, maybe run over that mountain to find a new food source when the tribe is starving. So these were moments that were crucial and were probably heroic uh, in a certain sense or a way that we found that hero's journey that you know people like Joseph Campbell have talked about and that exists in every myth and uh, fairy tale. 
And so that moment of fear and overcoming that fear uh, is, I think, really where, like, the zest of life is. And so I think, yes, we can overcome each individual fear and approach it, but then fear will still exist. You know, there's still going to be the fear of losing loved ones and the fear of death and that that's okay. It's kind of a continual process. And I think we get better at it. We um, sort of use our courage uh, in our brains and bodies and we develop that like a muscle. And if you don't work it out, it atrophies. But if you do, it becomes more fun and you start to see that every fear is an opportunity rather than something to hold you back. So you can almost, I think, get a little greedy for (laughs) approaching fear um, because it uh, it is fun to sort of shatter it and see that, okay, yeah, fear, that fear is in my mind. It isn't something that exists out there. And because I'm creating it, I also have, have the ability to uh, take it apart or deconstruct it and because it is my mind. And that takes discipline and practice, yes, but uh, just test it out, you know, test it out on something small. Like if you're a shy person and you every morning you get your coffee and you never say hello to your barista and she or he happens to be, you know, a... <laughs> a cute boy or girl who you'd love to flirt with or something, you know, test it out. Just say, I'm just going to say hi. I'm just going to say, hi, how's it going? And realize that it's not that big of a deal. So we start with small fears. And I think that in a way it, it starts to prove to the primal brain, the amygdala where this fear uh, is stored deep down near the brainstem, the sort of fear producer, it starts to prove to that primal part of our brain that, Oh yes, I can do it. And then, the bigger fears start looking less intimidating. So it's kind of like um, baby steps. And like you say, a muscle that you're working out, you get better at dealing with fear. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think so. I think that it is, at least the way we're understanding neuroscience right now, it's that the brain is incredibly plastic throughout life. And so, for example, there's this one study by this Israeli neuroscientist who also happens to be a rock climber that I talk about in the book, and he takes snake phobics and puts them in an MRI machine, and they have to they have the choice whether to bring a snake that's a live snake that's in this little window above them closer to their face or away from their face. And when they move the snake closer, basically a little part of their prefrontal cortex the more modern, logical part of the brain uh, starts to light up. And it, what it's basically doing, it's the modern, logical part saying, I know you're feeling this primal fear. I know you're paralyzed right now, but this snake is, one, on the other side of a window, and two, it's not a poisonous snake, so we're going to do this. And so that part of the brain is lighting up, and every time that part of the brain lights up, you're forming patterns, synaptic connections, and those every time those connections are made and made with more emotion, say that the snake phobic does that, nothing happens, and then she feels proud of herself or he feels proud of himself, that 
excitement or pride and emotion actually reinforces those connections even stronger. So it really is a muscle in the brain. Um, I think there's probably more to it than that even. There's probably, uh, you know, we're finding out all sorts of things about uh, neurons in the heart and uh, I think we think with our bodies and our spines and our hearts as well as our brain. But right now we're researching the brain. That's where we can see this happening. And it's clear that it is a muscle. It's it's a muscle we have to exercise. And the opposite is also true, that you can exercise the muscle of aversion, of every time you have something scary happen to you, you run away. And that pattern gets reconsolidated over and over and over again and it becomes stronger so that you want to do that again and again and again because that's what you know hmm. and is there a, a difference between good fear and bad fear I think so I, I think that I think I came to a conclusion of this at, towards the end of my book and I'm uh, but it's not an easy differentiation and I think Good fear, um, I think there is a good fear. For example, I'm a parent, and we have a 16-month-old, and that fear that my child might fall on his head, and so I need to be attentive, is a good fear, right? It's really sort of compassion dressed up in uh, this jolting, heart-palpitating emotion, but it, it's a good one. I think we, we need those. Um, we need that. But I think there are ways that, uh, in the social realm especially, it's easy to see this because we evolved like off in the Serengeti where the tribe was really important to us. And if you were ostracized from the tribe, that was a death sentence. And so even today that's been hardwired into into all of us that to be ostracized is sort of a death sentence but it's i think that's one reason public speaking is like ranks up there some people say they'd rather die or be burned alive than have to do public (laughs) speaking and when you think about it when you're up there on the podium you're asking the entire tribe love me approve me right here and now and this is it's either a make or break moment and So the primal brain is saying, looking out at that group and saying, you better make this work. And it feels like it's a death sentence, but if you haven't done it much, but it's not, it's just not. And so we have to um, update those sort of primal fears that are no longer applicable to the modern world. And that's, I think, an easy label for what you would call bad fear in the sense that it's holding you back. It's, it's not useful. It's not actually um, even logical. Like if I don't pay attention to my son, he might fall and crack his head open and I would feel really bad. But in the case of public speaking, even if I do a terrible job, nobody's going to you know, lynch me. So uh, it's, it's about updating some of those. And we have tons of those, like driving over bridges, um, you know, spiders, snakes, these things that are no longer really factors in the modern world, but take up a huge amount of our fear energy and sort of waste it. Because if you're constantly stressed, 
especially about things that are not actually there that are going to harm you, um, it, it's really debilitating for the body. When fear is meant to sort of mobilize us quickly and then we let it pass and we relax and we let our bodies recover, when there's a constant sort of low-lying stress, it doesn't allow our immune systems to function, we get sick all the time, we're bad, just not good friends or good parents or husbands or boyfriends or girlfriends, we're just bad, we're just lousy people. And I think that's what a lot of us are feeling these days with, um, especially because we take in so much bad news through the media and a lot of the primal brain, by the way, it doesn't really differentiate between images on a screen and the real thing. So when you go see a movie that's really violent and you get that adrenaline pumping, yes, we can tell ourselves it's just a movie, but there's some part of us that does experience that stress uh, in a real way. And if we're not able to let go of it and it sort of haunts us and then we go to work and there's a bunch of you know, memos or whatever we have to deal with. Like the stress just can build and build and there's this low-lying stress that's constantly there that's sort of debilitating. And I think it's one reason why uh, a lot of us are driven to do these extreme sports is because it puts those small stressors in perspective where, you know, if you just uh, whatever went, and climbed a mountain in Alaska and snowboarded down and you were face-to-face with your mortality, then you go back to the office and you feel like, okay, these actually aren't such a big deal. And they've actually done studies showing that that's that's true, that extreme athletes tend to deal better with the smaller stressors. So there are various ways that we're dealing with this. But, um, yeah, the, the primal brain has to be sort of updated and we're gradually doing that, but evolution is a slow process, and it's been a lot of changes in the last 150 years um, for the brain to deal with at once. Mm-hmm. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll find out how extreme sports can help us overcome fear. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Crystal Mountain Resort is Washington State's largest and premier ski area. With 10 lifts and over 50 named trails, you can spend days exploring the mountain. From wide open bowls and steep chutes for the more adventurous to family-friendly cruisers, you're sure to find something for everyone. The new eight-passenger gondola takes you 2,500 vertical feet to the best view of Mount Rainier and the Summit House Restaurant, where the food rivals the scenery. Convenient slopeside accommodations make Crystal Mountain Resort the perfect skier's getaway. Open for skiing until June. Learn more at crystalmountainresort.com. Are you a real sports fan? Get ready to talk football and anything else sports with Kwame Lasseter, formerly with the Arizona Cardinals, San Diego Chargers, and St. Louis Rams. Kwame's got the experience, so he's prepared to talk sports with you. Every week on Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk. It's on the Voice America Sports Network every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. Get ready for unpredictable fun and sometimes a sarcastic look at the world of sports. That's Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk on the Voice America Sports Network. The opening kickoff is a beauty. It's a fly ball deep right 
school to the pros we, we cover, everything. cover everything let your voice be heard voice america sports you're listening to the edge with kim kircher if you have a question or comment for our show today please call in to 1-888-346-9144 that's 1-888-346-9144 or send an email to kimberly kircher at gmail.com now back to the edge welcome back this is kim kircher and i'm talking to author jamal yogis Jamal, so do you think extreme sports are a particularly effective way of mitigating our, our fears? I think for some people, you know, clearly extreme sports are not for everybody. But, and I, I do sort of, and I, I think it's healthy to question why we do these things and and to not exalt them too much because, uh, when you're in the extreme sports world, like you and I are, um, there can almost be like this sort of blind praise of just doing crazy stuff and like how uh, extreme you can be. And I, I don't really think that's healthy, but I do think it's important to acknowledge that we have built, especially in the last 150 years, these incredibly uh, fear-based world where everything we do is for safety reasons. And so we rarely in a given day have to ever come up uh, and face uh, danger, you know, and and the car is probably the time that most of us deal. I mean, the cars are very dangerous, but we don't even think of that as uh, we've become so habituated to it. And so, uh, you know, throughout our evolution, there were probably lots of times in a given day where we did have to face um, sort of our mortality or extreme danger. And I think we developed sort of technology to deal with that. And, um, and so I think that became part of how we understand ourselves in the universe and also how we get into our peak performance place. There's all these um, studies showing that when you are doing something that where you face serious injury or, or even death, that you have a higher chance of getting into the zone or a flow state. And because you know that you can't make a mistake. And so that feeling, I think, is where we want to be in daily life, whether it's in the office or in our relationships, we want to be on point. We want to be feeling like we're part of this sort of uh, greater universe and that we're completely present. And uh, and yet we don't want to be doing stuff that is so dangerous that we uh, really do. I mean, nobody wants to be injured or... Uh, so I think these sports, when they're when they're sort of done in the way where you can trick yourself into feeling like uh, on a daily basis, like you're really pushing yourself to that edge without being stupid, that uh, there is something really magical that, that can happen that then you can bring back into your daily life and that uh, is as close as you can we can get to living in the now and living in the present and living 
to our full potential. And uh, so, um, I don't know, that, that maybe is a bit of a convoluted answer. But, I, yeah, I think these, these sports are great, especially for certain people. And I think others may confront that a similar type of fear in the arts or something. I mean, there's... As a writer, and you might relate to this, Kim, is like there's almost there's nothing more scary actually than presenting your heartfelt work to the world and asking for acceptance. Um, that can be for me is more scary than surfing Mavericks. Um, so I think there's various ways that we can come face to face with extreme fear, and people do it in various ways. But for some of us who are just very physical people. Um, I think these sports are are really good. Yeah. And I'm so grateful to have surfing as part of my daily life. Um but I think at the same time, you know, I'm looking at the surfing world and where it's going and how much there's this sort of desire to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing just for the camera snap or to get that praise of being the crazy one. But I do think that there's the flip side of it is that it can just be this sort of just incredibly egotistical drive to be recognized, which I think has nothing to do with actually overcoming our fundamental fears because in the drive to be recognized and just say, me, 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 I'm crazy, I'm really good, I'm the best, There, underneath that is a fundamental fear of not being loved or not being accepted into the group. And so I think we have to be careful about how we use these sports to blow up our egos um, because underneath that is often really the, the much greater fear of just not being who we are, not being okay um, as as who we are, and so I, I think there's a double-edged sword to to all of this all of this extreme sports stuff. But there is a way I think in that these sports get us into the present and get us um, meeting with the most fundamental part of ourselves, and that and that's where the liberating part is, and why I think we're driven to go back out and say I want to be up on that mountain. I want to be on that way because that's where I feel alive. That's where I feel whole. And I think that's um, also where we can see fear for what it is, just a part of our minds and move past it. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a difference between um, between people who do sports professionally you know, or at least maybe as a spot, you know, they're sponsored and those that just go out and do it, you know, like for me, when I go out and surf, I'm a, you know, I'm an intermediate surfer, you know, nobody's going to be taking photos of me, you know, but I can just get up on a medium sized wave and feel like, I mean, a million bucks, you know, I feel like I'm the, I am at the top of my game, you know, and I'm not even surfing that well, but it's so much fun. And I feel such a great sense of accomplishment because it's difficult and because it's scary and, you know, for all of those reasons. And I think that that is sometimes forgotten in this world, this media world, you know, of the progression of the sport. How big is it going? How big, you know, who's now 
surfed the biggest wave, you know, or right. skiing, you know, there's an, there's an equivalent. And I think that that's an important distinction in sports is that there's a difference between the professionals and their experience versus the rest of us, you know, where we're just going out to go out and have a good time, you know, so. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And, and, and that's what it's about, I think, is um, if we're pushing ourselves so far that we're basically freezing up and panicking, there's not much benefit to that anyway. So it's um, sort of the zone or, or flow. Uh, if we looked at it on a graph, it would be where, our our skill is pushed just to its sort of where we've trained to the maximum of our training and and the the circumstances meet that and maybe push it just 5% past and then it's like everything comes together but if you you know for example if i i don't know went whitewater kayaking tomorrow or something and just jumped in a, a class five rapid it would just be stupid and i wouldn't get anything out of it i'd probably just get injured or 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 die and it wouldn't be uh an experience of dealing with fear in a healthy way and so yeah i mean these profe- these professionals have the problem of being so good that to get there they have to do things sometimes that make us disgusted um we're, we're like oh man that looks like he just or she has no regard for life but the reality is i mean they've trained to the degree that doing that is um you know probably uh, the same danger level as maybe as me getting in a class two rapid on a in a kayak and so that that needs to be taken in consideration too but yeah i, I do think that um, it all along the way, it, it's about baby steps and doing your homework and training and then pushing just a little bit past that, just a little bit into that discomfort and seeing what's there and opening to that discomfort and then going to the next level. And it just continues to open, I think, uh, in, in sport and just in life. Absolutely. And I, I really think that, the you know, we talk so much about taking risks in sports, but there's a whole other realm of, you know, risk-taking that we can do, the pushing pushing ourselves just a little bit past our comfort zone. I was recently at a uh, writer's conference, and I was hanging out with a bunch of authors, and, and uh, we were talking about, I was doing a uh, presentation on... Um, on how to kind of overcome your shyness, you know, and, and getting out there and talking. And here I was going to, I was about to present to, you know, a thousand people. And I wasn't really nervous because I'm, I'm okay with talking in front of groups that hasn't, that's been something I've worked on in my adult life and I'm better at it now. But somebody asked me, well, Kim, you do all of these things, you know, all of these extreme sports, what scares you, you know? And I immediately responded, stand up comedy. You know, mm-hmm. I could, and of course, I'd never thought of doing stand-up comedy. You know, but right. in the moment, as soon as I sort of said that, that that's what would scare me. My friend, of course, she's like, "Oh, I'm I'm part of a theater group, and we do improv. You should join us." And I'm thinking, "Oh no, you know, right. no way, no way, no way would I ever want to get up and try to make people laugh." You know, like there's just no way. I've never been good at that. That's not my skill. You know. And it was funny to sort of see that um, that fear response that I had in that moment, you know, and um, and and then now 
that's sort of like something on my bucket list. You know what I mean? That I have to get up and do an improv class at least, at the very least, you know, right. because it's just something that I found out, you know, there's a lot of fear there. And I, if I want to get myself, you know, if I want to start testing my comfort zone, which I, I do believe is healthy in uh, like in moderation, you know, there's something right there that I could, uh, that I could work on, you know? Yeah, that, absolutely. I yeah. share that fear with you. And yet I do remember as a kid being, forged into these improv situations and like surprising myself and having a get really good time and and that's the amazing thing is if you don't try you just don't I mean with public speaking I, I was really afraid of it I remember on my first book tour I brought like I brought up my friend's band with me and they would play beforehand and then I would do like I would guide the audience through this little meditation and stuff and it was all kind of disguised as like I'm trying to get the audience into like a good experience and good zone but really it was all to relax me because I was really tense about it but it's amazing how and if you look look at all the different kinds of therapy the one that is most tested for overcoming phobias and anxiety disorders it's just exposure therapy it's just actually just putting yourself up there and doing it and so uh, you know, by the third or fourth book event I did, I was loving it. I was having a great time. I was being myself. I was relaxed up there. But, you know, the first couple weren't great. They were a little tense, but they went fine. And and so, you know, if you can just put a, a positive association um, and experience your fear in a positive light, even a, or even a neutral light, right, even if it just is like, well, that was okay, I didn't mm-hmm. die, uh, then you are updating that fear and the the lizard brain or the amygdala it needs experience i mean it's amazing how how much we can talk about our fears and this is where i think talk therapy sort of we people get hung up on it and they uh it works but it also, it only really works if you use it as a supplement to also going and doing it and i think that's where these extreme sports um are so helpful for then coming back into daily life because you can't just talk about, you know, launching off a cliff on skis and and have that be an experience or have yourself get better at it. So, you know, why we think we can do that with relationships or work is sort of silly too. You know, you can get a little bit of, you can get some release or talk yourself uh, or update memories through conversation, but ultimately the primal brain needs experience because what we take in through our senses goes directly there and it basically circumvents the logical conscious part of our brains anyway. So the lizard brain or the amygdala, it needs to be there in the moment seeing, okay, here's the tribe, I'm public speaking, I'm doing this impromptu, they're not throwing tomatoes, it's all good. And just like it needs to, you know, I could have thought about surfing Mavericks for uh, my whole life and even surfed comparable waves and thought, I could surf Mavericks, that's fine, and I'll talk about it. But unless I went out there and did it, the sort of, the fear would always be there, I think, for me, because it Mm -hmm. was, I I was scared of that wave. Some people aren't, Mm -hmm. but. Yeah, sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so anyhow, yeah. It's interesting talking about that, uh, you know, being on your book tour because it it made me think of, um, my very 
first book um, reading that I did on when I published my book, The Next 15 Minutes. It, the book is about, it's a memoir, and it's about um, my experiences as a ski patroller and how all of that helped me get through my husband, when my husband was diagnosed with a really rare cancer and he needed liver uh, liver transplant. And it was, you know, like a one in 1,000 chance that he'd live, which he did. Which is great, wow. but I'm I'm reading I'm reading this section because uh, because here I am you know somebody says hey Kim can you read you know from the book, and I'm like oh God okay yeah I got to read something from the book you know so I'm I'm reading and I just open up and I'm reading this section when he was diagnosed with cancer so it's of course like I re- open the book to like the most you know sensitive emotionally you know charged right. section of the book so I read it and I look up I'm reading it I look up and and my husband's sitting in the audience with his daughter, my stepdaughter, she's nine years old at the time. And I just start, I start crying. And I, I think, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm here in front of all these people and I'm crying. And I'm, I, I put, I pull it together, you know, and I kind of get it together and the, the, the talk ends. And then all of the books that, that were brought get sold like immediately. Mm-hmm. And my stepdaughter comes up to me and she says, Kim, way to go on the crying. That really helped <laughs> sell the books. <laughs> and the funny thing about that is that she made me laugh instead of feeling like, oh, my gosh, I failed, you know, and I and I right. made a fool of myself. Instead, it became this sort of joke. And she and I, she's really great like that. She was only nine at the time, but she's like kind of has the adult adult brain in her, you know, and, and she still to this day will remind me of that. Like, Hey, you know what? Sometimes you get up and cry and it's good for book sales, you know? (laughs) And so it did, it it recreated the memory for me. And instead of being this negative thing, I was able to sort of walk away and feel, you know, okay about it. Yeah. At least neutral. Yeah. I, it reminds me of sort of how, yeah, people love it when you're, when you talk about your, I mean, when you talk, when you start by talking about the fact that you're afraid of something, if you start a conversation, I mean, immediately you're sort of opening up. You're just being like, Hey, I'm human too. I'm vulnerable. And it's amazing how people will then often, uh, be vulnerable too. I was, one of my, one of my friends is like a really, you know, he's sort of a, a really high powered business man. And he has this group uh, where he he'll take CEOs and um, and get them together and or entrepreneurs and such and they'll all talk about it's sort of like a support group mm-hmm. for uh, for folks in that world and so often I think especially for the men they've been trained that they should always show like bravery and courage and fearlessness and like be the leader and. So they had, they were doing one of these groups, and they had this new guy came in who was uh, had had a very good record, but he was starting a new company, and they were all talking about their fears, like what are you afraid of in you know business or life or your marriage or whatever. And this guy just said, I don't have fear, period. And he was like, he sort of had this real like stiff uh, presence, and he was just like, no, I you know I let that go when I was a kid, and you know I I just don't have fear. And so everybody's kind of like, all right, (laughs) okay, cool, man. Uh, And he, and basically, you know, the story goes that he, not only was it sort of just awkward for the group, because then everybody was kind of like, nobody else wanted to open up, and uh, but his business just flopped completely, and 
he was finally it was finally his first time at the helm and i think that look maybe that doesn't reflect his attitude maybe it was just sort of a uh, chance thing, but I do think that people, you know, everybody, every every single person up to the president and up to Buddhist monks still experiences fear. I think the difference is how we choose to relate to the fear. And um, there, there's this great te- uh, uh, study by the psychologist at Chicago, uh, University of Chicago, Cyan Bylock, and she basically takes uh, students who fear math and students who love math. And she puts them in a situation where they're doing a totally new kind of math that they've never done before, and there's video cameras on them, and there's money at stake. I mean, it's just like all the stressors are ramped up. And it's funny because the students who love math, um, they get super stressed out. But the ones who get the most stressed do the best on the test, and the ones... Mm-hmm who fear math, the ones who get the most stressed out do the worst on the test. And what Sion's theory is, is that sort of how we, it's not actually the stress in our bodies that determines whether we perform well or perform badly. It's how we frame it. And so presumably the math lovers are going, oh my God, this is, I'm stressed out, uh, but I'm going to kill this. I'm going to do really well or, 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 whatever they're fr- they're like okay I'm nervous but I really want to try this out and it's the opposite and for the those who fear math and they're basically putting a ne- they're framing their fear in the negative and so you know if the bodily sensations are the same the cortisol release which is a stress hormone that's what she's measuring is the same but the result is is opposite and so that, I think that's really telling and I think that's uh, we're going to find out a lot more about that as these sort of studies go on. She's like, she's Scion's now doing the same studies with athletes and trying to figure out if if that works. You know, with I think that's interesting. Dash and stuff like that. Yeah, I I just find that fascinating because I re- I really do just intuitively feel as though the way we frame our experiences actually creates the experience. You know, if we tell ourselves this was awesome, or we tell ourselves, you know, even after the 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 fact, you know, you kind of go back and say, uh, "Wow, that that radio show was really great today." And then it was really great, you know. But if I right. if we if we leave and I say, "Oh, I was I flubbed that intro and I didn't do such a good job," well, then that's the that's the reality that we create, you know, and I think that um, that any kind of uh, studies that is showing us that uh, that that's really true, I think is going to be very valuable to all of us to understand, you know, in the future. Yeah, I, I think so yeah. too. I think uh, it's interesting when you look at people with social anxiety disorder, which a lot of us have on some level or another, whether it's labeled a disorder as sort of silly. I mean, maybe it's just those people are introverted or shy, but a lot of times when they give a public speech or they've been just introducing themselves to friends, they'll then rate themselves much lower, like they really flubbed it, um, than their peers observe them. And so that's like the perfect example of the way social anxiety presents itself. You're at a party and you're like, you know, sweating, but maybe you're acting, you're putting on a good face, but the way you feel inside is like, I'm really nervous. Or I don't feel like I'm quite doing this right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But when they take those same people and they 
basically put them through a meditation course where they just do like 30 minutes a day of meditation for eight weeks or something. Yeah, see, um, there you go. Where they're just breathing and observing their thoughts. At the end, their perception of themselves is much higher and much more in line with reality because, I mean, basically they're training themselves to just stay present with what they're doing rather than racing ahead and saying, basically, you've already failed before you've even started. Um, and I think it's, that's the, I mean, Jamal, that's, a, was, that's uh, all the time we have break. for today. We're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to take it, take it to the end. Thanks so much no for joining me and uh, we'll talk next time on The Edge. Thanks for joining us this week on The Edge. Please tune in next Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel as Kim Kircher talks with another standout who lives life on The Edge. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.